Coming up on this week's show, Becky Albertalli talks about the journey of Love, Simon, from book to the big screen. Welcome to the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for readers and writers of gay romance fiction. If you can read it, write it, watch it, or listen to it, these two guys are going to talk about it. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Adams and Will Knaus. Welcome to episode 127 of Jeff and Will's Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Jeff from JeffAdamsWrites.com. And I'm Will from WillKnaus.com. This week's episode is brought to you in part by listeners just like you. We will have more information on how you can help support the show in just a few moments. As always, we welcome you back. We're so glad that you're here listening or watching. Uh, We hope you had a wonderful week, had a chance to read lots of great books. I like that. I I like how we've started wishing people to have good, having having had good book read weeks. (laughs) I do know exactly what I meant, even though that was said in the worst way possible. Indeed. Because it's really nice that, as I've read more this year so far, mm-hmm. than I have 25% of my book goal already, I think, and it's only the first Oh, guess you're first showing of off, Mr. 25% of my goal. That is not how I meant it. <laughs> I know. I, he's being mean to me, people. <laughs> um... But it's just nice to have those moments where you just have the book, whether you're reading it or listening to it. And it's, it's a whole different entertainment experience, I've noticed, from like watching TV or a movie or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. That it's just, I enjoy those moments in the morning when I'm reading or getting ready to go to bed. And mm. I enjoy it more and more all the time. Exactly. Um, so, as you know, most likely, we are on the move this week. Uh, so we don't have a whole bunch of news uh, to go through. Actually, we have no news this <laughs> week to go through uh, because we are setting up our new home and getting our new studio ready to go. But uh, it doesn't mean we don't have some stuff to do on the podcast this week, mm-hmm. which we will get to after you get through your Patreon message. Yes, guys, remember, now you can help support the show uh, with a monthly pledge through Patreon for as little as 25 cents per episode. Your pledge helps pay for the cost of producing and distributing this show. Now, for fans who pledge at the silver and gold levels, you will have the exclusive opportunity to ask questions of our upcoming guests. And patrons also have the option of having a personalized thank you sent directly to them. Any month that our pledges cover our monthly production costs will produce a special bonus episode, especially for our patrons. Now, you can get all of the details on our Patreon page. Just go to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash biggayfictionpodcast. Your favorite new YA hero has arrived with Tracker Hacker by Jeff Adams, the first book in the Codename Winger series. At 16, Theo Reese is the youngest agent for tactical operational support. His way with computers makes him invaluable. He designs new gadgets, helps agents, including his parents, in the field, and works to keep the TOS network safe. But when a hacker breaches the system TOS uses to track agents, Theo is put to the test like never before. Thrust from behind the safety of his desk, Theo must go into the field to put a stop to the hack. He's scared, but resolved because one of the missing agents is his father. And just to make it more interesting, he has to keep everything a secret from his boyfriend and teammates. Can Theo get the job done, save his dad, and make things good with his boyfriend? 
Find Out in Tracker Hacker by Jeff Adams, available in ebook and paperback from Harmony Inc. Press, Amazon.com, and other online retailers. So while we were preparing for our big move, you actually listened to a new book uh, from a brand new to you author. Yes, uh, I read Amelia Faulkner's Jack of Thorns, uh, which is narrated by Joel Leslie. Uh, and this book, this book came to us, I think, because of Joel, uh, another one that Joel recommended. And, and when Joel recommends, I tend to leap on that bandwagon pretty quickly because he's not <laughs> steered me wrong. And he did not hear either. Uh, not only is Amelia a new author to me, but I believe this is my first book in that magical realism sort of genre. Uh, Tell us more. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so in this book, uh, we have it's set in San Diego, a pretty modern day version of San Diego. So I don't think that this book would classify as urban fantasy per se, but it definitely does have some magical stuff going on in it. Uh, we've got Lawrence, who's a florist, uh, a drug addict, because, you know, you might go a little crazy if you have psychic powers and need a little relief. Oh, I thought you were going to say because he was a florist. <laughs> no. <laughs> sorry. sorry. No, I'm sorry. Continue. Um, he could see the past, uh, of course, and uh, also the future, uh, which can occasionally throw him for a loop. He has seen things are coming to pass that he has seen uh, visions of, and it's it's freaking him out a little bit. Uh, but he also hasn't fully developed his power, so he gets these things in flashes and, and in dreams and stuff and doesn't really know how to deal with that. Uh, but he does know he needs to get his life in order uh, because there are so many more things he could be doing. He's He's great at growing flowers, which is part of his power, it seems, uh, but he's living at home, living with his mom. His mom keeps trying to patch him back together and get him through rehab and and all of that. But uh, in an effort to get his life in order, he ends up and accidentally summons Jack, who is a god of fertility, who's kind of willing to help out for a price. And that price is, is occasionally more than uh, Lawrence really wants to pay. Now, on the other side of things, there's Quentin, who is... Some sort of sort of royalty might be a duke a little. Uh, there are pieces of his past around this being a duke and being a little bit of royalty that he keeps really tucked away and hidden. He's he's really on the run from his family and his life and the paparazzi and everything else. He just kind of wants to to live his life and 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 be left alone. Really, uh, he's also a telekinetic who uh, really does not understand how to use his powers at all, kind of doesn't even know that he has them a little bit because he tends to black out uh, when he's telekinetic, but he can also do a lot of damage uh, when he's uh, kind of going off on it because it's when he gets angry or um, if he's uh, he's got a real hang-up about sex and so being approached that way can cause a problem. Um, so these two are really messed up uh, in some very individual ways. And they end up and have a random encounter um, and and then keep running into each other. And they keep getting pulled more and more into each other's orbit. Uh, one might say by fate. Um, and it's really awesome how these two kind of dance around each other, have their own baggage, occasionally share what that baggage is, where they don't feel like they should be around each other. Um, 
they each do some digging on each other on the internet because, you know, why not use Google for that uh, to find out about the person you might be trying to hook up with. Um, and then Jack kind of stirs the pot here a little bit, too, because he's trying to get Lawrence to more embrace his powers uh, and get him to feed uh, Jack. Uh, Lawrence does not want to have sex with Jack because Jack's a bit of a dick. Um, but, you know, he's Jack is out to get his power any way he can, uh, whether it's disrupting a party or going after Quentin or whatever it takes. Um, the other thing that Lawrence and Quentin do is help each other understand their powers better. Um, Lawrence sees the telekinesis in action and hears about it uh, in another instance and tries to help him hone his powers, while Quentin also tries to help Lawrence a little bit. And as they start to realize the threat that Jack is, they try to come together to team up to destroy Jack because they realize that Jack is really making a play to pretty much enslave uh, all of San Diego um, in, his, in his need for to be fed. He wants to be fed, and that's his thing. Uh, there are aspects of this, for better or worse, that make me think of Little Shop of Horrors because of some of the plant elements that play into this mm. a little bit. Um, and the whole, there's a more than once that Feed Me Seymour kind of goes through my head <laughs> with some of the way that Jack is here. Um, I love these two. Um, their 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 romance is so much of a of a slow burn and very very sweet. Um, they get to the point where, where, where Lawrence is trying to figure out, the, does, does he allow himself to be killed in order to destroy Jack? Should he let Quentin be killed, um, to destroy Jack? Um, I think everybody realizes that the, saving the population of San Diego is super important and it's a matter of who should be sacrificed. Um, and that just plays into the romance all the more. Um, completely sweet, and the action stuff and the magic was very cool to watch unfold as well. Uh, and I have to give a special shout to Lawrence's mother. Um, she is so sweet and only wants her son to be happy and to get away from his addiction. She's got powers too, which is why she's such a good florist, because she can make the plants grow like her son does. She also sees time a little bit, but she's very coy about what she sees to not influence uh, Lawrence too much. Um, so yeah, I, I love so much about this book and, uh, it is part of a series. So I'm interested to see where the series will go as well and what other characters, uh, start to play into it. So yeah, Jack of Thorns by Amelia Faulkner and, and narrated by Joel. Uh, and of course, Joel, I always say Joel does a great job and he does. There's a lot of characters that are in play here. Some have accents, some don't. Uh, but of course he makes all those easy to follow and, uh, he always hits the right emotional chords along the way. So yeah, Jack of Thorns. Uh, we've also, uh, started watching a new series. It's our first, uh, foray into the YouTube Red original series category. And it is Step Up High Water, which is a spinoff, of course, of the, uh, very popular Step Up film series. Uh, this focuses on a arts high school in Atlanta. Uh, we meet two characters who are originally living in Ohio and whose mom is uh, taken away because she's been doing drugs again. And they are shipped off to Atlanta to their uncle, 
they both dancers and they both really want an arts education and mom's mom's imprisonment kind of derailed their plans for what I think is their senior year of high school, although that wasn't made completely clear, uh, at least to me. Um, they end up going to a very rough Atlanta high school initially and then find out about Highwater, which is essentially run by a, was founded by a rap mogul um, and turned into this uh, essentially fame uh, high school. Um, and as we get in there, they, they are going through their process of trying to get into the school. And uh, it's very much, I would say, an update of fame in a lot of ways with the Arts High School. And uh, I've kind of fallen for this. We've watched three episodes so far. Uh, and we're about to have to go down the rabbit hole of actually doing the free trial of, of Red to kind of get more into it. Um, what's your take and how would you like to add to my description? Because you're always better at the descriptors than I am. <laughs> I actually really like the show. I think it is very well done. They've assembled a really exceptional young cast. Um, they're all really amazing. And of course, they're, you know, phenomenal dancers. Um I uh, so here here's the thing I recommend it to anyone who likes dance movies or uh like fame type shows I mean if that's not your thing obviously this show is not going to be <laughs> for you I think it is um it plays to the tropes of this particular genre very very well like you said mm -hmm. it's a lot a lot like fame uh yes they do dance in the cafeteria there's like you know all sorts of you know they're they're working hard and they're sweating in the uh, yeah all that sort of stuff um so it's got all the the familiar things that you know and love about like the dance movie or or education kind of uh entertainment uh, so it's got that going for it, but with a, a fresh modern take. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so I really like this a lot. I think it sort of um, goes back to the roots of Step Up in that it's uh, about young, talented kids trying to make it in an educational environment. Mm -hmm. um, as the Step Up movies sort of progressed they got a, away from that and got a little more uh, outlandish and outrageous. So this is sort of back to the roots of what made the um, movies so very enjoyable. Uh, and I like it a lot. Yeah, I do too. And it's there's a lot of talent behind it. Um, Channing Tatum and uh, Jenna Dawn Tatum are both executive producers on the show. And of course, Channing was in the original Step Up film. Um, Adam Shankman, who is also very attached to the uh, Step Up franchise as a producer and yep. actually directed the first episode. Uh, Debbie Allen's directed one of the episodes that we've seen. Um, Neo is in it uh, as the rap mogul uh, who has founded the school. Um, Naya Rivera from uh, Glee is essentially, I think, playing Santana as a grown-up. Who got her shit together. <laughs> kind of. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. Um, I really like her um, in this series. Santana was always one of my favorites on Glee. And in episode two, I think, she actually sings just a little bit. She's not really there in that role. Because um, she's the kind of principal headmaster of the school, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and this, the vibe of this series, to me, 
uh, and I'm curious to know what you think of this. I feel like this could almost exist in the same universe as Black Lightning uh, for some of the social topics and that it explores. And I mean, they're both in the Atlanta area. Um, and I, I could just, the crossover could be interesting, which of course will never happen. But, um, and it also, I mean, kind of revolves in the same kind of sphere as Empire and Star and, and some of those, um, some of those series as well. And the archetypes, as you mentioned, I like the primary trio of characters. I particularly like uh, Patrice Jones, who plays Tall, who is one of the, he's the brother in the brother-sister duo. Um, he dances amazingly. They've kind of revealed over the course of these first three episodes um, how good of a dancer he is. Um, his audition at Blackwater, or at Highwater, rather, was just incredible. Um, but he's also got this cute little puppy dog, adorable thing going on that is just, it melts my heart when he's on screen, especially if he's uh, going through some hard times and is it being treated well. Um, so yeah, I'm really interested to see how this keeps going. It's uh, 11 episodes on YouTube Red. The first four are available for free currently, at least as we're recording, and then you have to be a Red member for that. And I know we're definitely going to do our take that free month trial to finish off the series for sure. So check it out. Step up high water on YouTube red. Want to hang out with us between shows? Check us out on Facebook. You never know what we might post news about book sales, bonus video content, and maybe even a live broadcast or two. Like us today at facebook.com slash big gay fiction podcast and see what we get up to next. So this week is the week at the movies I have been looking oh so forward to. And even though we're moving this week, you can be assured that at some point over the weekend, I will be in the theater seeing Love, Simon. Uh, Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda is one of my all-time favorite books ever. Uh, and I was super excited when I reached out to Becky Albertalli to, to ask if she would come on the show. I actually interviewed Becky back in 2015. Uh, for a show I was doing called YA Yay, which was on Blog Talk Radio, uh, along with W.T. Prater. Uh, we interviewed her just a couple months after Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda came out in hardback. And uh, it was a great interview, and I just happened to reach out to say, hey, would you like to come on over here? And she's like, sure, let's do that. Uh, we've actually been sitting on this interview since December, because uh, we talked to her really early, before all the movie hype kind of spiraled up for her um she'd already seen the movie and we do talk about that in the show what it was like for her to actually sit down and see a uh, a final cut of the film um i'm so happy with this interview and just makes me ridiculously happy to talk to her about this um so this is actually in two parts this first part is all about the movie uh and then uh we'll come back next week with some more good stuff as well so shall we just dive right in yes let's I'm beyond excited today to welcome Becky Albertalli to the podcast. Becky is the winner of the William C. Morris Debut Award from the American Library Association for her 2015 novel, Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda, which was also longlisted for the National Book Award. She's a former clinical psychologist who specialized in working with children and teens and currently lives in, with her family in Atlanta. The big screen version of Simon arrives in theaters on March 16th under the title Love, Simon. Welcome, Becky. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for thanks for being on the show. 
Um, you and I last talked in June of 2015, uh, about the time that it was about two months that Simon had been out at that point as a hardback. And what a two and a half years you've had. <laughs> it has been um, a busy couple of years. It's been kind of a whirlwind. And, and congratulations on the success because it's it's really incredible to see, especially where Simon is now on the cusp of being a, a big screen motion picture. And obviously we'll be talking about that a little bit more. But to kind of go back in time for listeners who haven't heard me multiple times on the show talk about what an awesome <laughs> book Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda is. Tell us what that book's about and what its inspiration was to make it your debut novel. Yeah, I, uh, well, okay, so Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda is um, a book, I, I like to describe it as a book about two boys falling in love over email. And um, I can give a little bit longer of it. You know, I, I, I can speak um, to it in a little bit more detail. It's about a boy named Simon who is um, growing up in a very thinly veiled version of the suburb where I grew up. So it's like right outside Atlanta. And he's um, 16 years old at the start of the book, turns 17. And he um, is gay, but he and, – and he um, – is pretty comfortable with that, um, but he hasn't come out yet, and he has his reasons um, that he hasn't come out yet. And at the start of the book, um, there's this kid who is like, like an acquaintance of Simon's at school. He's like, you know, a theater kid with Simon. Um, and this kid, Martin Addison, um, stumbles upon some of the emails that Simon has been sending to this um, kind of anonymous pen pal the boy he um is falling in love with over email um so this acquaintance discovers these emails decides he's going to uh, basically blackmail simon and um you know kind of holds these emails over simon's head because he wants something from simon and um so basically the book is about simon kind of negotiating that situation um but you know, really, I, I think the heart of the story is, is a kind of this email relationship that's developing and be just Simon dealing with this idea that he is growing up and changing and he is different than uh, than he used to be just like, um, you know, teenagers kind of go through that I think or you know I, I know I did this feeling that you um have changed internally in, in certain ways and then um <clears throat> all of a sudden you kind of have to announce that and um and for Simon there's a very specific element of that which is you know kind of related to coming out um and that is that's something that is um very specific to him being gay. And then there's also kind of this element of, um, you know, there are all these little details about me that have changed too. And, and my family has this expectation, um, that I will be the same as I've always been like kid Simon. And, and I'm like kind of different and I don't know how to, um, be the Simon that they know and be the Simon that, um, that I am in this exact moment in time, which is a little different. And that's such a, I think, a universal story, whether you're coming out as gay or figuring out maybe what you want to be when you grow up or if you're going against what the expectations of your parents were in that regard. Or Yeah, 
I think so. I think, and you know, kind of the, uh, the piece where, you know, I always try to be pretty careful is, is, um, there is something universal about it. And there's definitely, uh, I mean, Simon's story is, is so personal for me and kind of some of that struggle is, is very much me as a teen. Uh, but there's also, um, you know, I, I, I do want to be careful always not to step on the toes of kind of this specific community that Simon's a part of, you know, just as a gay teen boy and, and kind of what it means to come out within the context of that community, um, which is um, something that I did not have to do and, and, and something that, um, you know, I, I don't know, it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's like a combination of, of a very specific experience um, that has some components to it that feel more universal. Um, but it's not entirely universal. And I, and I always want to respect um, you know, and appreciate kind of what this means specifically for Simon in this moment as a gay boy coming out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And having read the book, I, I think you definitely handled that pretty well. Um, and I would imagine that the, the feedback in these couple of years have, have proven that case as well. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I have to play the fanboy occasionally <laughs> because I've loved this book so much. <laughs> oh, gosh. It means a lot to me. <laughs> what was your inspiration for writing Simon? I think, you know, I, you know, I've thought a lot about this question over the last couple of years since, um, since I wrote the book in 2013. And I think my answer has evolved quite a bit um, because I, um, you know, I, I, I think my, process um, as an author in general, but for this book in particular, um, has always been a little bit mysterious to me. And it's, um, you know, it's not like a light bulb moment, or what it was never a light bulb moment for Simon, I almost wish it was. But um, it was very much more like this character uh, was somebody that I got to know in my head for a while. Um, and I kind of learned all of these things about him. And then I ended up, um, I ended up getting to know him better as I, as I wrote him. And, and at, at this point in time, he certainly feels like I, I do routinely forget he's not real. He's such a part of my, Simon is such a part of my life. Um, but back in 2013, you know, I can see these little like seeds of inspiration for the story. Like there are these little moments that, that have happened in my life that kind of got woven in there. Like I do have a memory of, uh, being being at work, I used to work at a school, and there was a whole team of psychologists that we and we were all on staff at the school. And I remember like getting on the kind of you know communal like psychologist computer computer that had all the programs that you used to score the tests and stuff. Um, and I got on there, and I went in to check my email um, through Gmail, and um, one of my coworkers hadn't logged out of his email. And I was like, Oh, there's your email, Pat. Like, and, um, you know, I, I did not, you know, screenshot uh, my coworkers email and use that to blackmail him. Um, I would have never, but obviously there's some part of me that like, I guess played around with that idea because that, that sort of showed up in uh, Martin's character and that's kind of where Martin went with it. So I don't know. I think it's, I think it's like just a million moments like that that, that get incorporated into to some story. And I and I, I never like consciously set out to write a story about that. But I think, um, you know, that was just like living in my brain. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
<laughs> now, Simon is headed to the big screen, as I mentioned in the intro, um, with a big studio release and helmed by none other than Greg Berlante, who has, you know, is kind of a master with teens and young adults and is currently the, the master of the Arrowverse on the CW. What was it like going Hollywood and, and, and bringing Simon out in, in that fashion? Um, it's very, it's very surreal. I think, um, well, the, you know, the first part of the process that I should mention that I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize, um, and I certainly did not realize until I was in it is that, um, you know, with Hollywood in particular, it's like, um, you know, there are a lot of things that can happen. Um, and it's very rarely a sure thing. It, it's like, um, you know, when you see an announcement that a book has been optioned for film, um, like, like Simon was like, it almost never turns into a movie. Like there are so many things that have to happen. Um, and an option, they're really just kind of, basically purchasing the right to make the film if they choose to, it's like they're renting it kind of. Right. And um, so, you know, so sometimes people ask me like, how did it feel when Simon got optioned and then you knew it was going to be a movie? And I'm like, I like, like, like I literally did not know this thing was going to be a movie until I visited the production office, like a few, like two weeks before they started filming. Like they were casting Nick Robinson, Jennifer Garner, everything like that. Like, you know, and I was still like, mm -hmm, that would be so cool if they actually made this movie. <laughs> like, too bad they won't. Um, because it's just, I don't know, it's just, it felt like such a, an unlikely thing. And it still is very surreal. And there's a part of me that's still like, I'm, I'm like, I think there's going to be a movie. And I mean, I'm like pretty sure there is now that the trailer's out and stuff. Um, but um, yeah, it, 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 you know, so. Um, you know, on on one hand, it is the most surreal, unlikely, bizarre thing that's ever happened to me. And then on the other hand, it's just like it it's like part of my life now, I guess, is is just um you know, I I do um wake up every day like thinking about this movie. I go to bed every night thinking about it. I'm like the biggest fan of this movie. Um and sometimes I almost forget that this is like I'm not just like a super fan who's like you know very active in the in the Love Simon fandom. I'm like kind of one of the creators of it, and that is what really trips me up. I cannot believe that, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember when we talked the, uh, for our for our, the 2015 interview that the, I had done the I had listened to the audiobook of Simon at the time because it had come out and we had talked about just how it was as an author to hear your words as an audiobook uh -huh, which performed. is still very surreal <laughs> and now you've seen this movie <laughs> I know <laughs> um, what was it like seeing it for the first time oh my god I, I... mean were you were you an author going that's my work and I like what they've done with it or ooh, why'd they do that? Or, you know, however that goes through your head or were you sitting there just as the fangirl going, this is, my, this is a great movie. Oh, a hundred percent fangirl. It was like, well, so I went and when I saw the movie for the first time, I had had the experience. I got really lucky. I mean, in a million ways, I've been very lucky with this whole Simon thing. But um, one of the ways that I was lucky is that they filmed it in my hometown. 
Um, a lot of movies happen to film in Atlanta and I happen to live in Atlanta and this movie is set in Atlanta and just, you know, it all came together and it was filmed in Atlanta and I got to see about half of it being filmed. So, um, <clears throat> when I saw the movie, there were, um, parts that I had kind of, you know, either watched, um, from the playback area kind of on set or I had actually watched the actors like you know, acting that out um, as it appeared in the movie. And I, I almost like, thought I'd be prepared for it. But when I sat down and saw the movie, it was, I, you know, I was totally slept away. There was like no part of me that's like, oh, that's different from the book or whatever. And, and you know, and I, I really hope audiences will approach the movie as something different from the book. It's actually quite faithful to the book um you know if, if you as long as you're not going in expecting it to be line by line which in which case you know you probably um will be more satisfied by you know the uh audiobook <laughs> which uh which does does have all the lines but, and it's also like many many hours um but if, if you're open to kind of a different interpretation of the story it's it's um it, it's very, it's very, very faithful. It's completely faithful to the like emotional tone of the story, and I loved it. Like I watched, I watched the whole thing, and I um, after it was over, I was like stunned into silence. And I, I, uh, I was there with one of my producers, Wick Godfrey uh, from Temple Hill, and and you know, and a couple of the other production people. And I think Wick was like nervous about how quiet I was because it was like I I I was speechless. I, I I didn't even know what to say. I just I head over heels. And then um, as soon as we you know I was there with my husband. As soon as we got in the car and shut the door, I like burst into hysterical sobbing tears. Like, and my husband was like, "Oh no, you didn't like it." And I'm like, "No, it was the best movie I've ever seen. It's the best. I just saw the best movie I'll ever see in my whole life." And I, I just like cried all the way home, just out of pure like love for this movie. I, I think, um, I like. I literally think my readers make fun of me for how much I love this movie, and they should because it's ridiculous. Like I am like, like I'm like a stan. For, for this movie. I, I think I'm using the word right. Hopefully it's Stan. So. Well, I think it's great that you are that big of a champion because I think it tells everybody who might be, oh, what did they do to this book? You know, because sometimes that does happen. It's like, how did right. they, they get this movie from that book? You know, and, <laughs> and the fact that the author can be that behind it, I think, is a tremendous, you know, stamp of approval for the fans to get all excited about it too. Yeah, and I, I really hope that's my biggest hope is that um, my readers will um, will get excited, get hyped for this, and that they will go into this film, um, yeah, just you know, with um, with an open mind too, because it is not. And uh, Angie Thomas, who wrote The Hate You Give, she's talked about this a lot too, and she and I text about this all the time. But um, you know, I think um, one of the things that readers need to know is is that. Um, you know, the film is not going to be just like the book. And uh, Angie's got the best way of saying it. She calls it the fraternal twin of the book, which I think is genius. And, and you know, to me what that means is that, um, you know, these two uh, form versions of the story, you know, coexist. They exist side by side. Uh, when the film comes out, the book's still around. Like, you know, it, it, the book's not going anywhere. And so, um, 
you know, all those moments that are really important to people in the book, those are still there in the book. Um, and some of them are in the film and there are parts of the film that are eerily like word for word from the book. There's certain scenes that it's just like, you know, when you, when you watch like Nick Robinson and Jennifer Garner and, and, and stuff like that, like, and, and like the, you know, like Simon coming out on Christmas to his family is like almost exactly like it is in the book. And it's just like, as an author, it's bizarre. Like watching it, it's it's like very cool. But um, and then certain scenes are a little different. And um, for me, that's exciting. And I just hope that my readers will be excited by that too. Yeah. Well, this one certainly is. So, <laughs> <laughs> how much input did you have in the movie, um, or were you? Was it just here's the book? please write your script and have a nice day. Or did you get to have more? Um, it's, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, I'm not a formal producer on the movie. So technically, um, I, I do think like technically my team could have like taken the book and run with it. Um, but, you know, I happen to have looked into having a very collaborative team. So I do feel like, I, I mean, I'm like very happy with the amount of input that I had. Um, because, um, you know, I think this team in particular has been super committed to like making sure that I'm happy with kind of the adaptation and, um, and, and just, you know, and just making sure that it's faithful to the source material. So, um, you know, and it's kind of been this thing where they had um, the writers write the script. And I, I, I wasn't a part of, like, writing the script. That was um, Isaac Aptaker and Elizabeth Berger, who, um, you know, are best known, I think, for um, for the TV show uh, This Is Us. And, um, you know, so they wrote this script. And then um, and then it was sent to me, and, and I was supposed to, like, give feedback on it. And, like, 99% of my feedback was just, like... I'm obsessed with this. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, um, but I think, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, they have been very, very open to my input um, throughout the entire process. It, it's like, I will say, like, sometimes readers will ask me to, like, make sure this song gets in the soundtrack or something like that. And I do not have that kind of control. Um, but, but um yeah, no, I, I do feel very involved. That's awesome. And I have to say, I, I didn't realize that the, the script writers were attached to This Is Us. Oh, yeah, they are. Yeah, they're phenomenal. It <laughs> just makes me fanboy all the more because I, the storytelling on that show is so exceptional. Yeah. Oh, Isaac and Elizabeth are, like, next-level genius. Like, I, 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 I haven't met Elizabeth in person, but I met Isaac, and I... I like could not talk when I met him. <laughs> I was just like, I, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I can't wait for people to see this movie because I've read, I've read the whole script and I've seen the, seen the movie. Um, and I know most people aren't going to have the opportunity to sit down with the script, but just like the, um, I, I, I mean, it's, it, the, the script is a work of art. Like even before you get into, you know, having, um, bringing on these like brilliant actors who are all at the top of their game. Like, you know, you just, the, the script itself is, is magic. It's, it's so great. Like, it's just like, they just assembled the dream team for this, this movie. It's cool. Without 
going into spoilers because we don't want to do that for anybody. <laughs> did the script writing team bring some nuances to the script that now you go back and say, oh, that would have been great in the book? Oh, my God. Yes, they did. <laughs> like it's uh there there are so many moments like that and it's it's funny i've heard that from a couple of other authors whose um books have been adapted and they're just like i wish i had written that one um you know one scene actually particularly comes to mind and this was really interesting because um this was neither in the book nor was it in the first draft of the script um and the person who thought to add this particular moment into the movie was Jennifer Garner, who plays the mom. Like, so Jennifer Garner, apparently, she like read the script and she was like, I think there should be this scene between the mom and Simon. Like, I wanna see this this resolution of, of, um, of kind of their arc. And so uh, Isaac and Elizabeth, the, the screenwriters, took that note and what they came up with is this like extra scene that's in the movie. And this is one of many scenes that is like, you know, I wish I'd put in the book, but there's this one in particular between um, Nick Robinson, Jennifer Garner, Simon and his mom. Um, like, I, like it is the ultimate like tearjerker, most beautiful moment between them and, it, and it's it's just like I, I get like choked up just thinking about it we were all crying at every take when we watched this being filmed and um so I, and and I love that and I love that it was Jennifer Garner of all people like who sure it because it's just this is such a like team effort this movie it's just like so many people have uh, made this movie like what it is um you know it's it's really special that's awesome. You gave me goosebumps. Just, I don't even, I have no idea what the scene is. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> need to see you're this right now. <laughs> you are, you are, you're definitely going to cry. <laughs> How did the title come to change? I mean, in some ways it makes a lot of sense because Simon versus the Homo sapiens agenda is, is a bit of a mouthful. It um, is. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, uh, yeah, I think pretty early on they kind of warned me. They're like, hey, I think they're going to change the title. And at first I was like, what? Um, you know, and, and kind of knowing it was a mouthful. And I, I was like, but the perks of being a wallflower is a mouthful, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, trying to come up with examples to present to them. But um, yeah, like, and, and that's literally what it is. Um, you know, I've seen people kind of wonder if, oh, they're trying to kind of make it, seem um i don't know less obviously about a gay kid but i'm like i think at now anybody who's seen the trailer at this point knows that like fox is not shying away away from that um it's it's just it's hard to remember and it's hard hard to say and it works a little better as as a book title than it does as a movie title and i think for Fox, um, one of the things that I didn't know, but I, I kind of learned about their process is they're very like research driven. Um, so they actually tested the book title and they tested a whole bunch of titles, some of which I hated. Um, like some of they were some of, you know, they just they tested them in the group, you know, <laughs> like, and um, and so they kind of let audiences give feedback about what they thought of the movie, what they thought of the title and um you know, and the book title was um, like, like a, a like a, basically a lot of the people who um, they were reaching for these early screenings. You know, they hadn't heard of the book. Um, you know, 
for this movie, what what Fox's goal is to reach a much bigger audience than I ever have with the book. So like most of the audience in theory, like will not have heard of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so the title didn't have that meaning for them, you know, and they are just like, I don't, I don't get it. Um, Fox tried out Simon versus like just that as the title. And then people are like, Simon versus what? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so there were all the, there were all these different, uh, different titles. Um, but yeah, so they kind of where they landed on love Simon, I think I'm almost positive that I am the one who put that on a list and suggested it as a title that I thought, you know, if, if we can't use the book title, here's one that I, I would like. Um, and I, I think this is one of mine. I, I do think that. And um, I, I personally really love it. And I'm happy. I'm really happy with it. Mm-hmm. Um, a, it comes directly from the book. Like, you can open up the hardcover and take a picture of Love, Simon in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that it is just very, like, unabashedly a love story title. And, you know, I think um, to me that's really special. And just also the idea that Fox put so much care into, like, testing all these titles and they, they want to reach a broad audience. That alone, like, means something to me. And, and you know, from what I've been told about these early test audiences, like, this movie has been testing so well that everybody's been shocked. And, uh, like, even, even the people who, like, love this movie so much have been, like, shocked at just how many other people are, are just like falling in love with it after seeing it, including people who uh, aren't necessarily part of, you know, the target group that they expected to fall in love with it. Like they, you know, I think they tested it in LA, thought it would do pretty well. And it did, it did even better than pretty well. Um, and then they tested it in like Kansas city and they weren't sure how it would do and it did even better than LA like people like including like kind of like these like red state mm-hmm. people you know who had filled out on their surveys and stuff things like you know I never thought I would be so invested in a love story between two boys but I apparently I am <laughs> and um and so with that in mind you know Fox was like okay like we've got to make sure that this movie goes mainstream and and that i can appreciate and that's um that's what changing the title was all about in my opinion Mm -hmm. and yet they've managed to for those of us who have long been invested with the book there are things in the marketing campaign that tie back to the book so well like the use of the red and yes um the font even in some cases and and those kind of things Oh, I know. Yeah. And that was like a, that was a surprise to me. I, I, I did not uh, realize that. Yeah. The poster um, is so similar to the book cover and it's, you know, I, I almost like, that's exactly how I pictured the poster, like in my dreams. I can't believe that's actually pretty much like how it turned out. Um, and, and then just also whoever's running their social media, I actually, I don't know who that is. I don't know who in Fox is running their like Love, Simon movie social media. But um, I've, like, proposed marriage to them a couple of times, I think, on Twitter. Like, I'm so, like I, I, it's, it's so based on the book. Like, it's clearly somebody who's very, very familiar with the book. And that, that means a lot to me, and I think it means a lot to my readers. It does. We, we talked a little bit about, before we actually got recording, that one of my early on favorite 
social things from the movie that even sold me more on how good this movie was going to be was the fact that there was a block for National Cookie Day that used Oreos. Yes. And people who know the book know that Oreos play a part in the story for Simon. And the fact that Oreo actually allowed themselves to be in the film, because I know enough to know that you just can't throw Oreos on the screen without asking first. Um, yeah. No, I know. I, I've learned so much about that. Yeah. Oreo, um, Waffle House, like like some of these um, things that are, you know, they're just little details, but um, but they do help kind of color Simon's world. Um, and, and these companies um, were like all in, which is really exciting. Even um, apparently somebody had to reach out to J.K. Rowling to get permission to put a Hufflepuff crest or something in or maybe it's a scarf i don't remember exactly what it is but there's there's some like hufflepuff gear in simon's bedroom and because uh, you know he's he's canon hufflepuff like me and um and apparently jk rowling herself like gave permission for it to be used in the movie which is something that like you can write that on my gravestone if you want like <laughs> you know <laughs> That's incredible that it went down to that level because I'd forgotten about Waffle House, but to me, Simon and Oreos have always been tied together since I read that book. And every time yeah. I see Oreo commercials, it's like, oh, Simon, you know, <laughs> that's how, how locked the brand has been. And it, it's just, you know, just one more thing that clicks all of it together for, for, for me anyway. I think um, so too. If, if Oreo, the company is listening to this, like I would... I'm very eager to be followed on Twitter by them. Um, Waffle House followed me on Twitter after the trailer dropped. Um, so, you know, Oreo, if you hear this, like, like let's, let's text, let's DM. Like I'm, I'm, I want to be your friend, <laughs> Oreo Corporation. So. so again, thanks so much to Becky for coming to hang out uh, for a while with us. Now, for those of you outside the U.S., don't fear uh, while Simon opens Friday, March 16th here, uh, it does open by the end of the month uh, in Australia and Brazil, and then it kind of rolls through Europe and the rest of the world uh, throughout the spring and into summer. So Simon should be to, to you somewhere in the world uh, over the next few months. And if you want to hear that interview that I did with Becky back in 2015, you can check out the link to that in this week's show notes at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. Hey guys, I think that'll do it for this week. We hope you will join us again next week for episode 128. Becky Albertalli is going to be back. Uh, we're going to talk more about Love, Simon, including details of her cameo. Uh, and we get into discussing the upside of Unrequited, which will come out in uh, 20... Well, the, actually, that was her book last year. And the forthcoming Simon sequel, there's a sequel, people, <laughs> uh, Leia on the Offbeat uh, comes out in April, and we'll be talking about that as well. Fantastic, guys. So remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next week, guys, please keep turning those pages and keep reading. For detailed show notes and the complete episode backlist, go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com. New episodes are available every Monday on all major podcast distributors and YouTube. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 